0: Welcome to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. Here, you will find discussion on all things EMDR, from emdr approved trainers and consultants, as well as some co-hosts. EMDR is an approach to the entire therapeutic journey, not just reprocessing trauma. This podcast will feature discussion on the therapeutic relationship, understanding and using the original eight-phase protocol, and what to do to bring deeper understanding to the why behind EMDR and what to do when you're stuck. This podcast is an invitation to connect and learn together about EMDR and the process of psychotherapy. We are glad that you're here. Welcome back. To notice that, an EMDR podcast. Hey guys, we are in studio. All three of us get to be here today, Yeah, um, which has been nice. We've done this for a few episodes now, mm-hmm. um, but what we want to, we're going to dive in more on some of the things we started talking about in the last episode. Mm-hmm. So if you have not listened to the episode that released a couple of weeks ago, I'd strongly encourage yep. that you go and listen to that.
1: Human you, as Organism. Yes. That's mm-hmm. the one
2: this conversation will make way more sense if you listen to
1: that
0: yes Yes. (laughs) so you've got that that foundation kind of laid and then we're going to build upon that by going in-depth on attachment and neurodevelopment. Actually, we're not going in-depth. There's so much to talk about there. <laughs> yeah. We're doing kind of a brief overview, but we are going to specifically look at the pieces of attachment relationships and how that impacts the development of the organism.
1: Yeah, and the plan right now is to to talk a little bit about just neurodevelopment in this episode, kind of picking up on some of the themes in the human organism uh, episode, and then we'll set up the next episode, which will be about attachment styles, yes. behaviors, mm. environment, et cetera. So, yes. mm.
2: so we're going to do a deep dive into that part of yes. it. Yes. Okay. In the okay. next episode. I'm, I'll say my
0: thoughts
1: then. Yeah. You can say a little bit, but then rain. we'll- no, But
2: not much. You rein me in just if, just I if I try it. to go yeah. too deep. Yes. Right. Yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so as you are listening to all of this material for kind of your own benefit as a therapist in the room, we have another podcast to support your clients where mm-hmm. we share a lot of the same material. But more in client-friendly presentation mm-hmm. and a really relatable, um, yeah, presentation of the information. So the other podcast that we have is Beyond Trauma podcast, and that is one that you can send to clients, family, friends. You know, you can listen to it as a therapist as well.
1: Yeah, but I have uh, quite a few of um, some of my clients are therapists and uh, clients as well, and they benefit very much so from from the episodes. So.
0: We in season one talk about just what is therapy in general, um, how to find good therapy, how to look for a good match in a therapist, some of those really practical pieces. And then in season two, we're talking a lot about trauma how it impacts the nervous system, the experiences of that. So Mm. check that out for yourselves, but then also feel free to send that as a free resource to people where they can be learning a lot of this and then coming to session and doing the work with you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For
1: Mm -hmm. a lot of the therapists that I've talked to about the resource, um, it's just an awesome Mm psychoed sort of element to bring to your work with clients. Like it's at work that you don't really have to put into the, um, to the case as a whole you can just say we trust this resource and we can go uh you can go listen to this on your free time and then they come in with more insight and awareness mm, yeah. into themselves into the work that you're doing with them as their therapist um but it's just a way of doing this sort of passive psychoeducation where you're not the one having mm-hmm. to facilitate a lot of this learning um so for so many people uh it it becomes a great just like yeah. adjunct huh. to their therapy
2: you guys ever uh, okay, so you know how like when you give your clients books to read, we call that bibliotherapy. Yeah, Bridger, is there a fancy word for when you give your clients podcasts, podcasts? to listen to? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Audio therapy, That's but a, yeah. And, yeah, no, it's got to be pod therapy. That. Po- pod therapy. Okay, there we go. There we go. We're just we're claiming it. it. <laughs> It works. It yes. works. So it's a uh, evidence-based modality called pod therapy that we would like to
0: advocate. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start That's some. That's not real. It, may, it might be. You <laughs> don't it know. Could be. Right. I bet if you Google it, you'll find something. Oh, then yeah. Then okay. One other, one other uh, helpful use of this would be for your clients to share with their loved ones as they're going through therapy. And they're getting this treatment and support, and they want to help their loved ones understand a little bit more yeah. about therapy and the kinds of things they're working on and how mm-hmm. they've been impacted. Mm-hmm. So I've had several clients say, this was helpful for me, but more so it was really helpful to give to my partner or yes. to yeah. give to my parents so they got more of an idea of what are we Not talking about. Not through
1: my... Right? Like- perspective right because so many i've had so many different conversations with people about how important it is for them to feel like they have support in sharing what they're working on in therapy with their family Mm -hmm. because from them they're just like well it just for some reason means more when it comes from somebody else which is you know a prophet
2: is despised in his hometown
1: that's right there it is Somehow that's relevant yep (laughs) so in in this uh podcast you know you can refer that to your clients, to their family, to whatever, and get a lot of different insight uh, from, you know, it's grounded in research and we're very kind of explicit about that. Um, but then it's also from seasoned clinicians that are uh, very committed to this work. So yeah.
0: mm-hmm. so with all of that being said, let's dive in. Mm-hmm. Let's dive in
1: Okay. to attachment and neurodevelopment.
0: Which is one of the three one of the three pillars mm-hmm. of our theoretical approach mm-hmm. and case conceptualization approach in everything we do mm-hmm. yes it is it is the such a strong strong piece to how we will conceptualize and look at every single case like you can't make sense of a case or even know what to do in therapy without really looking in deep in depth with the client on what was going on in their attachment relationships and what Mm -hmm. impact did that have? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. And that, I mean, to me, one of my favorite ways into this conversation is to talk about nature versus nurture and to give tons of metaphors (laughs) on all of that. That's how I, that's how I kind of work in the room and then also as an educator. Um, but for me, um, you know, we know that it's not nature versus nurture, it's nature and nurture. And again, that's a callback to that last episode of human as organism. We talked a little bit about how, you know, the building blocks of life are begun in utero mm-hmm. and in the, the sort of transmission of genetic coding and all of the different uh, specifics of one's family lineage that are now like the building blocks of what uh, the human will have to work with as they begin to have experiences in their life. And so that's where the nurture becomes now, uh, a, a, a shaping conduit of what was the nature inheritance epigenetically, and then in, in utero and into, mm-hmm. into the postnatal phase. And so for me, one of the metaphors that I use to describe this is the idea of a house. Um, where the foundation is, you know, the building blocks of what the building will be as it goes on being constructed, but that the, the foundation is important to look at because if there's a crack in the roof or a crack in the, the walls of the house, you can't just patch that. You have to look at the reason that it became, uh, you know, the tension ripped the wall apart in the first place, which is a f- issue in the foundation of the house. Right. And so we have a a visual aid for this where it's in the house is on a foundation and then on the left side of the house is our concept of self and on the right side of the house is our concept of other. And when we start to look at the house as a whole and how we are functioning interpersonally and have our symptoms or the disorders or presentation, whatever, we have to look at all parts of the house. Where is the person's understanding of themselves and relationship? And how does that make sense based on their lived experience? Mm-hmm.
0: When I think in the way that applies in the therapy room is if the foundation is solid, then we can just repair the crack in the roof. Yeah. We can just fix that. And that could be effective if there's if there's not an issue with the foundation. But when a client comes in and the foundation is just like crumbling, it mm-hmm. was crumbled, or was, this house was built upon a very weak structure, then the roof itself, if we bandage that, it's going to come back. Mm -hmm. The crack is going to come back. Issues are going to continue to show up, which means our our focus and our work in the therapy room has to be, how do we mend the foundation? Mm -hmm. How do we get them back on a strong platform so that we don't continue to have these issues in the structure?
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious for you guys, like when it comes to really trying to articulate to people what we mean when we say attachment and neurodevelopment and why are those two things together like i guess i guess i'm just sort of seeking examples and sort of you know pictures of how this actually functionally looks because you know immediately most of us will think of attachment styles Mm -hmm. Um, and we're going to talk about that yep but that's not the only thing to really think about and consider when we're conceptualizing somebody through their attachment experiences, their rupture repair experiences. So, um, what do you guys feel or feel like are kind of the the key elements or the things that we should be paying attention to, um, with this particular piece of the puzzle?
1: Mm -hmm. For me, I go back to Dan Siegel's, uh, interpersonal neurobiology model of what are the four S's of secure attachment um, that while we're not talking about attachment styles, the four Ss lead to the mm-hmm. sec, lead to a secure attachment, which means that the elements of that uh, acronym are getting at what a human organism needs in order to feel safe in connection with other organisms. And when that's true, we start to see really adaptive functioning and a healthy uh, degree of integration and uh, interconnectedness with like all of the systems of the body, uh, all of the parts of the brain, and then the self that emerges from that becomes mm-hmm. reflective of that integration and that interconnectedness and the more adaptive uh, organization of experience. And so those four S's are safe, seen, soothed, and secure. Hmm. So whenever we're looking at a situation between one organism and another, it, are these four S's present? And if they're not, why are they not? What is the context within which we're observing this uh, playing out of an experience? And how do we start to see, you know, this person doesn't feel safe, which means they don't feel seen, which disallows them from feeling soothed, which means they're not going to be securely attached to this individual. There's not enough safety. There's not, a there's, there's too much threat in the environment between these two organisms. And when you start looking back at the earliest building blocks of life, we have something called sensitive stages of growth, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which when it's, which when we're in an environment where we're not feeling safe and our neuro templating is at a very, uh, sensitive stage, meaning that it's interconnectedness is very, uh, malleable at this stage. And we can get some really, pronounced structural building that we can't later in life, then the templating that's going to occur in those, uh, those stages of experience or development now build the templates Mm -hmm. for the rest of their lived experience.
0: Yeah. You know, Melissa, when you were asking that question, what my mind was connecting it to was AIP at the the foundation of EMDR therapy. Mm -hmm. And we start looking at how does an individual process information that becomes very relevant in in the memories that we're working on as we need them to be able to adaptively process the material. Mm -hmm. And so when we start considering, okay, why is it that one individual can process that experience this way and another may maladaptively process it. And so that then is what leads us back into how was that system developed? How was that processing system created? And why could you know two people go through a very similar trauma and make sense of it so differently? Mm-hmm. That then leads back to it is their life experiences that shaped, that, that created that information processing system. And those early life experiences, the most important ones being those attachment relationships. And so it's from those attachment relationships that we have the, the development of their adaptive information processing system mm-hmm. that then is going to further, you know, show up in how they're making sense of trauma mm-hmm. now adaptively or adaptively. Mm-hmm. And that really influences the kind of focus that we have. Yeah.
1: Yes. Yes. You look like you want to say amen. I, I want to say <laughs> so many things. So many things. Mm-hmm. Um, I just love like the concept of looking at the four s's of secure attachment and then that through what actually contributes to the to the quality and organization of the adaptive information processing Mm -hmm. systems Mm -hmm. um you know information processing in the brain is based on lived experience Mm -hmm. that's how we know how to process information Mm -hmm. and so if you track that back in time to those sensitive stages of growth and you're looking at these templates for information processing trauma becomes really relevant, attachment experiences in general become really relevant, and how uh, safe or secure that individual felt in being all of themselves uh, in a safe uh, environment Uh where we had to, you know, choose objectivity, another concept we talk a lot about, uh, to hide or to shelter or to shield themselves from their environment, that creates new templates that now there's more threat in my environment than safety, right. and I'm just gonna carry that yeah. belief forward for the rest of my life until my experience maybe shows me something different.
2: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think one thing that I kind of keep thinking about, besides just like actual lived examples of this, which there's like lots of them, and so I, I feel like we should spend some time kind of articulating like what does this actually look like in human beings and in lived lives and all of that, because I think that's really relevant, um, but in that, you know, conversation about information processing, I feel like that's a phrase that gets used a lot and is, like, severely underdefined in the EMDR community. (laughs) Like, what exactly is that thing? Um, And what does it mean and what is relevant? Because information processing, both of those words are so uh, big and general that they can kind of cease to have a lot of um, nuance to us and a lot of real depth and meaning. And I think one piece of information processing and our information processing system that's really relevant for this conversation is that your information processing system is actually a real biological thing right Mm -hmm. like it's in your body it's not just a concept it is a structure um or it's actually a collection of Of structures structures and a, a collection of biological processes that go on so it's a real thing not a conceptual thing that feels really important um the other thing is that the The way in which our lived experience shapes that information processing system and the structures involved is um, very connected to the way that we, as an individual, detect and respond and evaluate threat or lack of threat. Right. So the the part of our um, systems that is always paying attention to how safe am I right now versus how not safe am I. That is. Intricately involved in our information processing system Mm -hmm. And if we think about how that connects to attachment it is our attachment relationships that mediate whether something is threatening to us or not Mm -hmm. right, and so all of that begins to come together and create this really um, Intricate system of environment evaluation and and Those experiences that we have in attachment relationships early on create those structures So, you know, like Jen and Bridger are saying for the rest of our life those same structures and systems and processes are utilized to evaluate Threat or lack of threat in every situation that we're in Um, And another thing that I feel like is really relevant for this conversation particularly with EMDR is that attachment rupture is not always the usual suspects. And so with our clients, we wanna be really curious about um, how their attachment relationships not only uh, played out, but how it felt to them. And things that um, maybe we wouldn't normally ask or think to ask, or that the client doesn't even know could be relevant. Um, So being really, really curious with your clients about Um, the, the feel of their attachment relationships, not just the stories they've been told, not just the stories they've told themselves (laughs) about their parents, um, but the, the felt sensation of it. And the other thing we have to remember as therapists is they don't know what they don't know. Right? They don't know the gaps in their experience, and so sometimes we have to come along and help fill those in. So here's mm-hmm. what I mean. They may think that they felt safe, but if they've never actually felt all the way safe, they have no way to effectively evaluate the lack of safety that may have been present in their life. And so really exploring, not just taking a yes or no answer to those questions and moving on, but really exploring the feel and the, the quality Um, And all of their descriptive words and language and even what their body does as they're describing these relationships helps us have a much better sense of what their attachment experiences were really like. Mm Um, and so I'll give, speaking of examples, because I would like to include some, here's a personal example, um, that I have been processing a lot lately and it feels very relevant is, you know, my daughter in many, many ways has a very securely attached relationship with me. However, for the first two months of her life, we could barely touch each other, Mm. completely relevant, Mm. has nothing to do with lack of love on the parents' part but everything to do with these crazy circumstances that disallowed some of the, the main methods that infants experience attachment. And that's a, a story that clients may not know how to tell us because mm-hmm. they don't even know that it's relevant, right? right? So that's why in EMDR training, we, we remind you guys ask about prenatal Ask about how mom was doing when you were in utero. Ask about birth stories. Ask about NICU stays because all of that is so relevant for, for this uh, area of exploration of their lived experience because even though those are not things that the client may think of as relevant,
0: it is relevant to their body. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, was, I have another example. Okay, so if you're yeah. going to comment on that. Well, I was go just going
1: to, yeah, just very briefly say it's the condition of the attachment environment that mm-hmm. matters most. Um, not necessarily the, they had these experiences and they didn't have these experiences, but how were those experiences felt, encountered, integrated, mm-hmm. and then, uh, sort of implemented back into the environment. Um, that's the cycle that really we need to start paying attention to, but
0: yeah, yeah. So I, this feels like it fits perfectly as an example, and maybe just cause I just talked about it, but as in a consultation earlier today, um the therapist I was working with was sharing about a case and we were kind of conceptualizing the case. And this individual had a major grief or a major mm-hmm. loss trauma mm-hmm. when she was 18. And um, in the processing of that, and EMDR were looking, okay, she has good, good childhood, so super supportive family, uh, like really supportive family, and we're trying to make sense of what, what targets do we work on? Mm. Where are we going mm. with this? And that loss, that everything kind of comes back to the grieving right there. and But looking at that as saying, okay, we can target and process that event mm. and see if it changes everything else. But what we have to first notice is how is she making sense of that event? Right. Is it, and, and the symptoms that are showing up are indicating that the way she's making sense of that event already are structures that have kind of been there,
1: mm-hmm.
0: already setting her up to process that loss in a certain way. So, because of her attachment experiences of family being really, really supportive, maybe in fact um, overly mm. caretaking and supportive, mm. that loss now is being processed in a way of saying, I can't be okay now, I can't can't take care of myself, Mm -hmm. I can't, you know, like going Mm -hmm. through this where if someone else was processing that of it's my responsibility or it's my fault or I should have done something, Mm -hmm. however they're making sense of that experience we're targeting is gonna give us so much information to say is this really the starting point? It's clearly the biggest trauma, no doubt, but are there these other life experiences that have set the foundation Yes, for now, her to make sense of that event in right. a certain way of herself, in a certain way about the world. Yes. and if we don't see that piece of it, we're going to try to target that trauma, and get lost in thinking, why is this not working? Right. It's not shifting. Right. Why? Why things changing? Right. Or,
2: yeah. ha- or feel really lost in choosing interweaves when they hit a stuck point. Right. Yeah. Our interweaves, if we're picking it based on, well, this is universally usually the problem when we face a grief and a loss. Right. But we miss the context and we miss the the individual nuance of it. Um, yeah, we're just kind of hamstrung in that yeah. space. On well, the
1: way that you're telling just this brief synopsis of the case, it makes me like, you know, think about these brain templates that we form early mm-hmm. in life, which was for this individual, if it's the case that it's the fact that I lost this person that makes me feel then that I can't handle anything. Mm-hmm. The template that was laid early in life through various experiences was one of, I can only handle something. If right this person is here right. or if this person can tell me how to do it And so when that loss happens It doesn't just it's not the normal type of grief like you were mm-hmm. referring to it's not just that this person is gone It's that my agency My ability to have autonomy and control and actually carry out my will in my life mm-hmm. is gone
2: so now there's not just the the grief and the sadness and the the attachment rupture of the actual lost relationship but there's also fear about my ability to handle challenge in the future exactly. which is how it plays out then yes. as an adult yeah, it's yeah just riddled is. with anxiety mm-hmm.
1: yes. yeah I'm sure low self confidence
2: yeah I can't handle hard things I'm not
0: capable of hard stuff yeah, yeah. and all these I narratives need somebody get, to rescue me yeah, yeah. wrapped
1: around if I'm dumb or I'm yeah. just not what I, yeah
0: Yeah. So that, that same event, which, you know, a a teenager losing someone important in their life, that happens all the time, unfortunately, but looking at how is that individual organism making sense of that situation Mm -hmm. and what, um, yeah, what resources or what foundation do they need to be able to work through that adaptively? And that's where it brings us into, it always comes back to the early attachment relationships. Yes. Mm-hmm. Gosh, it always comes <laughs> back to it that. Does. Mm-hmm. It really does. Yes, mm-hmm. it
1: does. And I, and I think that there's, you know, within EMDR, I think there's still benefit to more of these brief orientations that are just getting at symptom reduction, desensitization, stabilization, resourcing yeah. and things like that. But, what we're advocating for in this podcast and in the way that we practice is that that's fine for the first stage of, of trauma treatment, which is mm-hmm. focused on that symptom, symptom reduction. reduction. Uh-huh. But if we're actually going to get into the processing of traumatic memory and then the reintegration of the self, like a stabilization and a authenticating mm-hmm. of that core self, then we need to be talking about their lived experience as they've made sense of it. Yeah. That's really what we need to be processing. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, and I, to me, like at the very foundational level, because so much of this can start to get, um, like overwhelming and daunting as a helper and a healer. And even, I mean, not even, but especially as a parent, mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, how do we even hope to create real secure attachment for our children mm-hmm. or for our clients? Because there's so much that can, um, mess with that and create challenge in that. Um, And I think a couple of things feel really important in, you know, thinking and feeling through all of that is that number one, there's no such thing as a 100% securely attached human being. That cannot be our goal because that is an impossible goal. Um, And I think that for me, and I'm curious to to hear you guys say, like, how do you hold that tension? Like, what does that feel like to you? I
1: think you have to, like talk about why that is, because that would assume there's no threat in the world, and that everybody's intentions for me are for me to be my 100% true self. And that's just not the case. That is not true. Mm -hmm. And,
2: And the idea that that is actually a biological impossibility, or possibility means that uh, we would have to have a body that does not genetically hold any reactions or, or held patterns to uh, traumas of generations past. Right. And that is nobody's lived reality. We should just be a clean slate. Right?
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just right. yeah that's that, right. I mean, that's a thing, right? That's right. <laughs> Sorry. Don't we wish? Yeah. Um,
2: yeah. So I, I feel like that, is an important uh, kind of consideration that helps us stay grounded in our efforts around really attuning to attachment and how important it is, is that we're never gonna get 100% secure. That cannot be the goal. There is this concept of uh, a good enough parent, and this really applies here. It's the secure enough attachment. And our, our bodies are really sensitive to this idea of critical mass. It just has to be the majority, right? Or it has to be powerful enough to overcome the fear. It's not that we never feel um, fears or anxieties or lack of confidence about things, but it's that we have enough of the good stuff to outweigh that. And EMDR works with that critical mass so well, mm-hmm. right? You know, why, why do we not attempt to target every single lived Negative experience that a human has ever had, besides the obvious answer of nobody has the time nor the money for that. We don't do it and we don't teach it that way because it's not necessary. Mm. What we need is a critical mass, right? We need enough shift so that the system then evaluates things through this lens of, well, yeah, there's always a chance that there could be challenge or struggle, but evidence shows me that I'm probably going to be okay, right? Yeah, I'm going to encounter somebody that is a jerk to me but evidence shows me that normally I am loved and accepted wherever I go yeah. that human being can be incredibly functional and happy and healthy and have great relationships right. but they'll still have arguments occasionally but they'll navigate those arguments right maybe not even with ease but they'll get through them and have the skills that they need because it's a good enough secure attachment and so that feels really important and supportive when we're doing this work because it can start to feel like an impossible ask
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, for me, um, you know, the concepts of um, attachment and navigating through these relationships and what it means for that to be shaping our neurodevelopment. Uh, we've talked about it on that Human as Organism podcast uh, episode, this last one. But for me, just bringing back into that awareness again, that house metaphor and what goes into the foundation is what's going to provide the stability for those later structures that's true for the brain mm-hmm. and so as you start to look at the experiences that this person had in utero and in those early stages of development uh, in in their early life um, that is what's providing the type of, of like organization I'm, I'm talking about like literal stacking and mm-hmm. connection between brain parts that contributes to that overall global appraisal of the self or the core self. So who am I? Well, that's based like that idea. The answer to that question is a like reflection of how neatly or well interconnected the brain is. And if it's off kilter, then the concept of self is going to have some of those guilt, shame components in it and not good enough or not strong enough or some way looking at myself is lacking and is therefore less than. Because of the stacking of the brain parts, like it's just telling the story flat out. When I ask you who, you know, who are you or what does it mean to be you? And there are shame elements in there. That to me is an indicator of there's been experiences in your life that have shown you that very thing. Mm -hmm. And that you made sense of it through that uh, lens, Mm -hmm. that that could be the only answer. It's that, well, I'm not, just not good enough.
0: And either enough experiences important enough experiences yeah. or within that those really sensitive stages of growth yes those experiences that were not just like a time or two that when right. i sent that message but right. that my selfhood was was created and i understand it as a result of those mm-hmm.
1: yeah and there's a lot of research that's uh, been done dan siegel talks about this as well but just on the reality of our of our ability to recall past experiences Um, even if we've quote-unquote processed them uh, through the concept of virtual others. This is a concept we talk a lot about um, at Beyond Healing, but it's this um, idea that in this templating process, we have this ability to create an internalized representation of our environment, including the people that we're in relationship with, that will then communicate with us almost mm-hmm. internally mm-hmm. about, uh, what our current, uh, experiences or environment are showing us and how we are then, uh, appraised as a self right. in that environment. Right. So the virtual other could come up that, you know, I'm not good enough saying to me, like, you're not good enough. Right because the last time I tried to do this was with this person and they told me that I shouldn't because of this or when I couldn't do it, they said, well, yeah, you're not good enough to do it or you're not skilled enough or whatever it was. Um, and these can be things that are way back in there. (laughs) Just about like when I tried to, uh, reach for my first thing and it was a glass of water on the table and I was in toddler and I tipped it over and everybody freaked out because it shattered. That could be stored in a way that was, it's because I reached for something mm-hmm. that I was then the cause of the big reaction in the right. room. Right. When really, no, it was the fact that it tipped over and broke and your mom was worried that right. you could step on the glass or get hurt. Mm-hmm. So she was scared for you, not mad at you. But that isn't the memory that's stored. Mm-hmm. It's the virtual other that when I try to take action in my environment, it creates a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. And I just shouldn't do that. Mm-hmm.
2: But in that same story, if that same child experiences multiple experiences of a attuned mother that moves to protect rather than disciplines out of anger that can once again hit that critical mass where that one little experience really doesn't have that much weight in comparison Mm -hmm. to all those other experiences. On the other hand, if that is a repeated theme, and then we get that piling on effect of over and over, that is reinforced. And now I have mm-hmm. you know, that big box of proof, as you talk about, Bridger of yes. C, whenever I try to take action in my environment, I get a consequence of some kind. People don't like it when I really show up. So you know what's a great strategy? Well, I got a couple of main options here. Either I could just lean in and drive everybody nuts and try to figure out why everybody's freaking out, that would be the that's, a child. Yeah. that's a
1: choice child. That's a choice,
2: right? Or we're going to get the disappearing act, right? Yeah. Of you know what, never mind, I'm just going to opt out. How about the invisible child act, right? And the the choice there is dependent on a whole lot of biological factors and a whole lot of predispositions and things like that. But those reactions can come from the same genesis, the same moment in time where that strategy had to emerge, um, because they were having those consistent reactions in their environment.
0: So to kind of connect that to the eight phases, it's not to say that that one incident with the glass, um, so it, it wouldn't be just one event just right. like that that is going to create this perpetual right. problem right. Of, for the adult but we will find one experience that represents exactly Mm -hmm. that theme in their life and that will be what we process that can have kind of this generalization effect right but it's also most effective when it's met with resourcing that matches it Mm -hmm. the need that's there Mm -hmm. Yes. yes so finding those experiences where the evidence says oh hey i did try this other thing and it, and went, it well, went well. You know. Or people were okay with me failing at it. Mm-hmm. And no one reacted with a big reaction when it didn't turn out right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we're installing and strengthening those experiences. And if those didn't exist because of the traumatic nature of the, the childhood, mm-hmm. then we're helping them create them now. Yeah. Yes. And we're experiencing them relationally now and, and installing those. Yeah. So that that can be processed. And in that mm-hmm. process
1: of installation, you're doing what memory reconsolidation does, where you're holding the original evoked event, And then adding that resource and holding Mm -hmm. them in tension and saying, like, what's it like to go between and notice the felt sense Mm -hmm. of difference? Mm -hmm. And then you're just, again, contributing that to the critical mass saying, like, what do you think of that? Mm -hmm. What's that like for you? Mm -hmm. And especially connecting it to the now with me. What's it like to share that with me and for me to Mm -hmm. be here with you now?
2: Yeah. Well, and to and to feel it. In this present moment, with this present body. That's right. With an adult body, with all the resources that I have. I was talking to a consultation group the other day, um, and we were talking about, you know, SIP and EMDR and how beautifully they blend together, which we all love to talk about. Um, but one of the conversations we were having around resourcing was that sometimes we forget those uh, bottom level resources of basic safety and survival. You know, we quickly move to, oh, yeah, we need relational resources and yeah. things like that. I want to go
1: supercharged. Yeah, let's get yeah. the huge ones. And
2: because, I mean, those, those matter. They really, really matter. But, you know, what else matters is was this a little kid that had any concern about having food every day? So maybe the resources that we install are around, you know, their current kitchen pantry, you know, like walk in and look and see, see the abundance that you have, feel what that means to your whole body with this new awareness. I recently, um, installed a resource for somebody that, uh, she had a huge history of, um, neglect and just you know coming from a family that like they didn't have a lot it's not that she wasn't loved they just didn't have a lot going on and so all of her clothes were hand-me-downs because she had five older sisters And so the resource for her uh, was to look down at her current adult body dressed the way that she was with the apple watch on her wrist and install what it feels like to know that she bought that for herself and that she could go out this evening and do it again if she wanted to and so those moments as well are so incredibly important uh, when we're thinking about resourcing that those most basic, those most uh, basic needs um, that maybe we didn't get or they were met conditionally, they matter too in installation. Yeah, and mm-hmm. we're
0: resourcing with intention. Mm-hmm. We're not just grabbing out of the box and saying, oh, have you gotten this yet? Have you done your right. nurture or your projector right. or your right. complex? Like, yeah, we're not can just we... check, checking all the boxes. Can we just oh, Bridget's about this?
2: to get on a soapbox. I yeah, no,
1: can
0: tell. saw well, the re- readjustment, yeah.
1: <laughs> just because like there is this... Um, this phenomenon that I've that I've just encountered as I've done more more consultation of if a person has gotten a client who has already done EMDR, hmm. the questions are: Have you done like just like you're saying? Mm-hmm. Like, have you done this? Oh, yeah. And then it's like, okay, we don't need to do that.
0: Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah.
1: What? Uh-huh. Like,
0: Resourcing's done. Resor- well, they're right they're very yeah. well.
1: You know, they're they're resourced already because they had an EMDR therapist before. And I'm sorry, I don't mean to laugh, but it just to me like shows the. Like lack of understanding of what the neurobiology of resourcing and of mm-hmm. EMDR really is. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't matter if it happened a million times with somebody else. You're here now, right? With each yeah. other,
2: right? Yeah. Okay. So I'll play a little bit of devil's advocate. There. I'm in. Yeah. Yeah. I know you are, which is why I'm going to do it. So what I want to potentially, what I want to acknowledge that is potentially happening and hearing us say that is this tension that a lot of us feel as EMDR therapists of, there's a lot of conversation around, oh my gosh, resourcing is so important. Do more of it, don't move too fast. And then on the other hand, we have this conversation about, don't spend too much time in resourcing. That's not what people are here for. You gotta get to the good stuff, right? So I just want to
1: acknowledge I'm
2: watching your guys' faces. But I think that there are probably a lot of listeners that feel a bit confused yeah, about that. Sure. i
1: they, There are.
2: Yes, because that, that is a, a conversation. And, and, and at different points in our conversations, we have said both of those things. Yes. So I would love to really articulate why both are true and why they both matter, and what is actually going on in the tension of those two things. And I'll take a crack at an answer, and then you guys go next. I've got okay. a lot to <laughs> I bet you do. I bet we <laughs> all do. Yes.
1: And really quick, there is Jen and I did an episode on resourcing, and so go back and listen to mm-hmm. that if you're curious just to hear some more about the neurobiology of resourcing and why it really matters. Yeah. Um, that's I'm saying that mainly for me so that I don't re yes, some of that content. Yes, we don't have to
2: say all the things. I want us to just speak to this particular yeah, point of I'm the in. tension So you're going first? Two. Yeah. Okay. So, so I'll say something evocative. Are we ready?
1: Evocative or provocative?
2: Both. Oh. I'm going to use evocative language and oh. it's going to feel provocative. <laughs> Even just that sentence That's does it. exactly that. That's yeah. Good words. Um, okay. There is not a difference between resourcing and reprocessing when we actually know what we're doing. How do we feel? Okay. I'm seeing question eyeballs. Mm-hmm. So let me say Digesting. more. Digesting. Yeah. <laughs> because if, if as an EMDR therapist, our focus is on providing for the nervous system sitting in front of us, a in the moment experience that helps them reach their goal of knowing that they're safe in the present and having access to all of the things within themselves and their community that they need in order to have the life they want, there is not a difference between the two. Both resourcing and reprocessing work towards that goal. So it's not about which tool do we pick up at the perfect time. It's about understanding that both can do both things. It's about the way that we're using these tools and, the, and what our particular focus is on in the moment. One is about adding and the other is about subtracting predominantly but both things do both. It has to do with ratios. So let me say what I mean about that. Resourcing, the ratio is we're adding in more, but we're also subtracting past lived experience of under resourcedness. Mm. Does that make sense? With reprocessing, it's the opposite. The focus is on removing the trauma of the past, but if you think about what happens in reprocessing, very, very often the system ends up doing its own version of organic resourcing towards the end of that process. So that's what I mean by there's not as much difference as we, as we like to talk about. Um, we divide them for, for conceptualization, right? For right. being able to have a plan and, and work within that plan. But our body does not differentiate in the same way. And that feels very important to me when we're considering, like, why do we get into this debate? Um, because they're, they're both doing the same thing at the end of the day. They're just focused slightly different. And so for those of us that, like, get really in the weeds with EMDR, like the three of us do, and, you know, are very organic about the process, um, we're being sensitive to what is needed in the moment mm-hmm. rather than finding a linear protocol and sticking to it.
0: Yeah, I think I, I kind of see it on a on a spectrum where you're moving traumatically stored or maladaptively stored Mm -hmm. material, processing through that. So having them be able to like release the information, the pieces of that memory storage that are no longer helpful to their systems and moving that then into a stored experience that has adaptive nature to it, Mm -hmm. that feels supportive and beneficial to their sense of self, their understanding of the world around them when we're already reaching or accessing a memory that's already held that way, we're further strengthening the storage of that. We're helping them connect with that more and experience the embodiment of that or the -hmm. the connection to that stored material even more. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of the shifting of what is maybe activating or maladaptively stored into something that can rest in a storage that feels adaptive and supportive to the system. Agreed. Mm -hmm.
1: I think where my mind is going is that um, the which is true to form for me i guess like the macro <laughs> perspective of what it means for us to have delineated them inside the treatment protocol um to there's a resourcing fit, you know component in preparation and then we also call back to those in our uh, interweaves or in our stabilization in the reprocessing mm-hmm. and desensitization phases mm-hmm. why does it feel like like there's even a debate necessary. And I think a large part of that is we, we, we stick to the content of our training, but forget the process that we're right. really being taught, mm-hmm. which is the process of memory reconsolidation. I know and, I'm like and, a broken record, but. And to
2: be fair Bridger, not everybody was taught that way. Not everybody was trained in a way that really gave them insight into the why we do what we do. Well, no, with
1: the yeah, that's exactly what I'm yeah. saying. Is like yeah. we fixate on the content because mm-hmm. that's what we can standardize.
2: And that's about as much as you can get through in five to six days of training. Yeah, so there's the <laughs> like, consultation yes, and yes. yeah,
1: all of those elements. But even that is is in my like own experience, especially as um, you know, I do case conceptualization consultation. So it's not specific necessarily to the EMDR certification. But even still, they're bringing specific questions of, well, is this in the transition from mm-hmm. phase two to three? Yeah, where are we or? in that linear protocol? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, okay. We need to touch, we need to stop with the content and start talking about the process. process because what EMDR did the reason that it's effective at all if it is is that memory reconsolidation is happening, mm-hmm. which is we're bringing up the body's natural elements of holding memory mm-hmm. in a maladaptive way mm-hmm. and we're adding resources to it that can then um, help the body generalize and more adaptive and pro functional uh, association in memory. Mm-hmm. That's what like that didn't just happen with EMDR. That's very old (laughs) uh, understanding and wisdom that EMDR put together in a a packaged way Mm -hmm. that then says it doesn't really matter what you're doing. This is a good order to go in and we use this to replicate efficacy studies. But ultimately, we're talking about memory reconsolidation, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Right. Dan, mm-hmm. I saw
1: you give a big face to me. Oh, I
0: just me. thought, oh, we're going there. Like we're doing that on this episode. <laughs> I feel
1: like we might. There was a
0: <laughs> which bit? There was a if mm-hmm. EMDR um, that gave me a reaction. Oh. Like, oh, 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 we're going. To uh-huh. I
1: think it's always healthy.
0: Uh huh. What? What?
2: Which bit?
1: To be like, why does it work?
2: Why does it not work sometimes? Exactly. That's mm-hmm. what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because we're saying, and I think this is what you're reacting to, EMDR doesn't work yeah. all the time.
0: Yeah. Yikes. And, <laughs> I mean, and, yeah. and and this this is, just true. like this is where we're going, so we'll go there. <laughs> Full <laughs> sin. Just go ahead. How's it's your not, body reacting well, to this not, conversation? Just, I, love, I love it. And <laughs> yeah. I love to say this in like individual conversations, yes. like on consultation yes. calls, saying it on a podcast that she feels approximately like... 6,000 people might listen to <laughs> you. Yeah. Um, feels overwhelming, yeah. but yeah. I'll say it anyway. So EMDR is not the magic we talk about it to be, mm-hmm. right? No. Like, it's not, um, and bilateral stimulation isn't the magic,
2: yes. right? No, memory because walking reconsol- is bilateral. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. Memory reconsolidation does not require that, right? Come it on, Jen. Require- I'm going
1: to get, oh.
0: BLS. Mm-hmm. So, th- what does that mean in our field, and what does that mean in this thing that we've built our, you mm-hmm. know, careers and professions on? And why do we still stand by it? Right, right. So, this is my making sense of it, and you guys can chime into okay. this. But
1: I'm just gonna put my laptop down. <laughs> Forget that. Out <laughs> Co- <laughs> you know, cozy in there, Bridger.
0: The <laughs> bilateral stimulation offers a way to initiate the system and to focus it in and make it more efficient, more effective. But we mm-hmm. can do all of this without it. And every bit often of this do. Can happen. Yes. Yeah, I mean, our, our systems are naturally created yes. to be able to do it mm-hmm. and do it every day mm-hmm. with experiences, right? That's like right. it's a mm-hmm. normal thing to do. But in the context when that system is then stuck or is unable to do it on its own, when well, we use therapy, And if we need to have this more acute focused, narrow Mm -hmm. in something very efficient and effective for the individual, EMDR is a possibility as an option for that. Yes. But memory reconsolidation is happening um, in therapy approaches without bilateral stimulation. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yes.
2: I mean, I got lots to say. You want me to go?
1: Uh, Yes. Okay. I'd love to end it.
2: Oh, (laughs) I'll give you that privilege. Thanks. (laughs) Um. Okay, so how many different thoughts? Okay, so I'll keep it to a few. Number one, um, and you guys are going to roll your eyes because I literally reference this resource more than once a day on average. So the research that has been done on like what sets master clinicians apart um, in that these are clinicians that seem to get above average results consistently. Mm-hmm. Right, like they're doing something that is the, the magic sauce. Um, when they actually do research on that, it's not the clinicians that are doing EMDR, which kind of goes to this point, but there is a something and EMDR includes that something. And so this has to do with, um, you know, overlapping Venn diagram of EMDR can include this, but not all EMDR does include this. And that element is the therapist and the client's ability, the mutual ability and willingness to focus together on the moment to moment experience of what's happening in their body on every level, between them and the therapist, right? and really be with it in a very present-oriented way and track the experience throughout the entire session. Mm-hmm. Um, that comes from the work of Eugene Genlin. You guys mm-hmm. may roll your eyes now because I talk about him all the time. He has a tiny little book called Focusing. Go get it and read it and give it to all your clients. But that, that ability to really focus, the reason why Genlin called the book Focusing is because that is what master clinicians do with their clients, regardless of what modality we're using the ability to really focus in, to be present uh, and incredibly attentive, to take a tiny moment in a session, a moment of activation, and stretch Mm. it out. I know you and I both did the same thing. I love it. Uh, Like stretch it out and look at this, uh, you know, I don't know, this microcosmic moment of humanity and say everything is held right here. Like it's all present right here. And if we do that, the system has enough space and enough attention, um, to actually do what it naturally wants to do, which is heal. Mm -hmm. Right. And the, the active ingredient in all of that is attention. The most underutilized uh, tool that we have as therapists and as human beings is our attention. Um, the body will heal what we are holding our attention on when we hold it in the right way. And EMDR naturally sets us up to do that. And that is why EMDR is so effective. Bilateral stimulation assists with attention holding. Mm -hmm. It assists with blocking out extraneous distractions, um, but also gives enough distraction to the system, which is a, a paradox, but it's true that it doesn't get interrupted by signals of threat Um, in the midst of attempting to focus on this thing. And so there's something really, really special that happens in the EMDR container that allows that moment to moment focusing to really occur. And if we think about, you know, notice that, go with that, what do you notice now? It's all about attention. Mm-hmm. It's about all about directing the client's attention to certain things, away from other things. Us as the therapist, we're holding attention on certain things. And when we do it in that way, we do get those amazing results. If we don't do it that way, EMDR can be incredibly ineffective and even in some cases damaging. Mm-hmm. And so that is my explanation yeah. and my mm-hmm. thought process on all
0: that. You know, that is why we spend hours upon hours upon hours in our lives talking about EMDR's because yes. it's our chosen yes. way of focusing. To do this. Yes, yeah. it is our
2: yes. chosen way to focus. Yes. We have yeah. we have a few others that we really like as well. Yes. but this just happens to be the one that we and spend a lot of time on. And we found
0: a supportive way of teaching it to other That's people right. so that they have a supportive you know, standardized approach to also mm-hmm. support their clients in this way, but it doesn't mean it's the only no. way. No. no,
1: and it's, yeah, because it's a tradition of bringing synthesis to the field of healing mm-hmm. that uh, has been going on for, <laughs> since humans have been around. Right. And that to me is where, when we're starting to talk about the effectiveness of psychotherapy, you know, it, it's, it's about, in my perspective, in my opinion, It's about the element of being able to track intersubjectively, just as you're saying, like what the unfolding of the experience is Mm -hmm. while naming that it's intersubjectively experienced while naming the relationship, naming that it's happening here now with Mm -hmm. us Mm -hmm. when we can do that and have that, that dual focus of present moment awareness in bringing up and reprocessing old experiences. We're healing. That's what it is. Yeah. And that to me is where memory reconsolidation is just the naming of what is true about human beings. Just the same way EMDR is in its origin. Um, It's not this new thing that's like Mm. hijacking or like bypassing or hacking the human nervous system. It's just honoring what is. Mm -hmm. And that's where all of our. (laughs) Sorry, guys.
2: Hope everybody's awake. (laughs) Supposed to feed the fish.
1: there's the alarm that's amazing are there multiple alarms because <laughs> we, we
2: double should check
1: that out yeah. right now <laughs> the other day it was right, like guys. it was uh what was it allergy medicine
0: oh yeah. no. i'm gonna <laughs> stop doing this was that on the podcast too i don't think it was, <laughs> that was but that's so really great yes we could amazing. edit this out if we need to.
1: <laughs> i think it's human i like it leave it there uh, go feed your fish go later. feed your fish yeah mm-hmm. text somebody to go feed mm-hmm. the fish <laughs> uh, not
0: even mine, <laughs>
1: <laughs> but yeah, memory, you know, uh, that, and that to me just gets at all of what, uh, I just love talking about every day, which is, you know, in a, in looking at the uh, effectiveness of psychotherapy, mm-hmm. we're just looking at modalities that have come around in the past couple hundred years that have been honoring to the human's way of healing. Right. That's been true for millennia. Right. And so I don't care like what modality you want to do. There are these, you know, common factors associated with highly effective treatments that have been replicated over and over and over again. And all of them validate what we've just said, Mm -hmm. that it's about the intersubjective ability to track and that it's naming the intersubjective space that creates healing.
2: And what we are focused on within that space. What do we, what do we include? What do we say this matters and this doesn't matter? And that is incredibly cultural but currently in our culture, therapy is one of the places where we're invited to actually focus on our own intra-psychic and the intersubjective spaces and really pay attention to that because that's not a thing that happens.
1: Not an invitation that's everywhere. No,
2: no. But if we think about healing modalities in general, there is always that element of what are we focused on? How are we holding our attention? What matters? What doesn't matter? And the reason why all healing modalities include that is because that is what yes. healing is.
1: And the yep. reason that I, I think you will both agree as well. But the reason that I like EMDR and will always continue to pursue, um, you know, learning more of what the research says and Mm -hmm. training this and consulting over it is that it really neatly packages Mm -hmm. the basic ingredients for healing and it provides a modality that is consistent. I do have my quirks with it. And I think that that's true for all of us. Mm -hmm. Um, and the work that we're going to continue to do in integrating case conceptualization theory and how memory reconsolidation really manifests in a human, I think EMDR holds a lot of potential mm-hmm. yeah. for, and yeah.
0: It holds a nice support for the therapist and the client. Yes. Yes. Where it's, you know, yeah, all the ingredients are there and especially when it's done well and within within a co-regulated relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it holds a supportive approach for the therapist to have a guide in that and um, also for the client to feel like everything is being attuned to and noticed. And yeah, they have the space for that healing. Yes. yes. So, this episode took a turn. <laughs> no, hold on. And that's what I was just going to do. Bring it home. Bring it on home. I knew you were going to do it. Yes. There
2: is going to be a connection yes, here. And I is. trust your brain to make it hundred percent. Right it's going to happen. Good. It will find it.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, because we started this episode talking about attachment and neurodevelopment. And we mm-hmm. talked about that in utero and how the basic ingredients of uh, information processing systems are shaped in and through experiences throughout the lifetime. Memory reconsolidation is the way of looking at that in terms of bringing about a psychotherapeutic outcome that we want to reprocess through um, previously maladaptively stored in EMDR language um, experiences and get them to transition, as Jen said, across the spectrum into that adaptive, uh, you know, pro-social, pro-functional uh, nature of memory. And all of that is, is true for memory reconsolidation and EMDR is our favorite one mm-hmm. of that. So when we're talking about neurodevelopment, that you have to talk about neurodevelopment before you can ever talk about the effectiveness of EMDR or memory reconsolidation as a whole, because that is utilizing the hardwiring that exists in the neurodevelopmental period and the sensitive stages of growth of early attachment experiences. Beautiful. There's the link. Well
2: done. Mic drop but don't drop these mics. They were inspect and expensive. Yes. And they're on stands. <laughs> that's so. true. That's hard. Yeah. But the metaphor, stands. no, Jen,
1: just try to punch a mic.
2: <laughs> oh, I feel like that's a good wrapping point. Yeah. yeah.
1: Next week or next episode, we're going to be talking about attachment, uh, strategies, behaviors, and experiences like the styles. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've got quite a bit to say on that as well. So we separated so it out yes. into another episode, mm-hmm. but we really hope you guys enjoy this. Um, And as Jen said at the top of the episode, go like and comment mm-hmm. or maybe that was before. Yeah, I don't know. A different one. It was before. Oh,
2: also come to a retreat with us mm. or send your clients. Okay. So, so we're super excited about this. Part of the reason why we're super excited right now is because we have just grown our ret- retreat doing team exponentially. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had to, you know, keep the calendar really tight because there haven't been very many of us that are able to do it. And we've recently had a training with uh, our clinicians here at Beyond Healing and uh, prepared them to do retreats and we just did a round of retreats last week and I got to do one and it was just beautiful and so much fun Mm. and Caleb got to do one and he I've just I feel like he's been like on cloud nine. It's like the For, therapist afterglow. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Um, that might not be appropriate to say, but, uh, <laughs> but the point is, is that we love doing them and so much gets to happen in such a short amount of time. Um, yeah. and we have beautiful spaces to host you guys or to host your clients and it's three to five days of just immersive healing, uh, with yoga therapy, massage therapy, horses, if you want it. Um, also our farm location just got dwarf goats that you can pet while you're having your retreat. So if you would like to go co-regulate with a tiny baby goat, you can do that now. Uh, Absolutely. that's, oh my gosh, they're so freaking cute. <laughs> I might buy one. Um, so if you would like to, uh, get more info about a retreat, you can email at us. At therapy at beyondhealingcenter.com, and that will get forwarded to our retreat coordinator, Brooklyn, and she would love to answer any questions you have about that. We also have some basic info on our website at beyondhealingcenter.com under the retreats tab, and there's a PDF you can download to either send to your clients or to review yourself that has lots of information about uh, what that experience is like. And we would love to host you here in uh, Springfield, Missouri, and come see Beyond Healing Institute and all the fun we're having here, and uh, come hang out with us, guys.
0: We'd love to see you. Yeah. All right. See you next time. Bye-bye. We hope that you have enjoyed this podcast episode and that it will help you help your clients in the process of EMDR therapy. If you are curious to learn more about something that you've heard today, check out our website at www.beyondhealingcenter.com and go to the trainings tab for more information on our upcoming EMDR and case conceptualization trainings. You can also contact us by emailing trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. If you want to stay connected, please subscribe to this podcast for more episodes. Leave us a review and follow us on social media by searching Notice That Podcast.